Go ahead and take a seat, please. It was the 10th of March, back in 1876, that a man disrupted the world by uttering two sentences. And I will validate that it was two sentences, not the last sentence that the Americans have whitewashed. The two sentences were this, Watson, come here, I want you, God save the queen. Pretty benign words. Why would those be words that have disrupted the world? Well, it's because those were the words that were spoken by Alexander Graham Bell for the first time in human history, transmuting human voice from one distance to another. And ironically, the thing that happens with new inventions is not everyone appreciates them as something disruptive. People wonder, why would you ever want to be here and talk to somebody who is far away? That there wasn't this initial appeal or interest in it. In fact, there was one company, Western Union, that should have actually recognized what was going on. A year after the invention in 1877, the president of the Bell Company went to Western Union and offered to sell all of the patents and all of the rights to the telephone for a mere $100,000. Western Union was not interested at all in buying Bell products. Well, in the world of innovations, there's three types of innovations. There is a sustaining innovation, which takes an existing innovation and it just makes it a little bit better. Think typewriter to electric typewriter. Then there is a niche invention, an invention where an area did not previously exist, where something's invented and now fills a space. But then there are disruptive innovations. And a disruptive innovation, you could think of the typewriter going to the computer. How many of you still on a regular basis use typewriters in your own home? Likely not very many. A disruptive innovation is something that will completely change the way things work and the way things operate. Well, it was a year after um, Bell offered to sell to Western Union that Western Union realized this is not just a niche invention. This thing is taking traction and it may disrupt our telegram business. And so they went back to Bell and said, actually, we would like to buy it. And at that point, he said, I'm not selling. And then they did what any good established company with lots of resources does. They do everything they can to crush the new innovative company to make sure it never sees the light of day. As you know, uh, Bell continued and is now has disrupted entire industry. To know how much it disrupted, think about how many phone calls you've made in the last week compared to the number of telegrams. I'm guessing you've made a few more phone calls. And this pattern of what happens with innovation, I think that we will see something similar happen in the ministry and in the teaching of Jesus. As Jesus begins his teaching, there is a question about whether his ministry is going to be a sustaining ministry. Is he going to take things that exist and add just a little bit of extra seasoning and flavor to it? Is Jesus going to say, I'm just going to go over here and teach this thing and it's not going to affect any other people, any other religion? Or is Jesus' ministry going to disrupt the entire direction of people's understanding of what it means to be in relationship to God? And when it becomes clear that he is involved in a disruptive ministry, what are those who are the current power brokers going to do? They're going to do what any company does. They're going to try to squelch the competition. So I want us to begin by reading from John chapter 2, and we'll be reading the first four verses. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. While this is true of any and every biblical text, I think it's especially true in John and specifically in this text that it's important that we learn to ask the right questions. There's a lot of questions that we can get coming out of this text. We're curious people and we want to know, well, who's getting married? And why was Jesus invited? And what role did Jesus' mother have in the wedding? Why did the wine run out? What did she expect Jesus to do? And all of these can be answered with, at best, a speculation. Now, here's the good news about a speculation. Your speculation is good as anyone else's speculation. But at the end of the day, your speculation cannot trump anyone else's. So the better question we should be asking is, what exactly does John want to teach? And what exactly does John want to reveal in this writing of Scripture? Jesus offers what, if we were observing would be a really surprising and unusual response when he says, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. If you were teaching a Bible class to children about how to treat your parents, this may not be the passage you would want to go to because Jesus is actually intentionally putting a little bit of distance between him and his mother. And so here's three ways we can see the distance between Jesus and his mother. The first is the recognition of how he calls her woman. It wasn't a disrespectful term. It's just a term you wouldn't expect for someone to call their own mother. Um, the, the way I thought of this was, uh, those of you who know Vonnie Lang, her grandkids will call her lady. She says it can create some awkward situations when she's at the park and the kids are on the swing and they're saying, hey lady, come push me on the swing. <laughs> she has to explain, these are actually my grandkids, that's why they go. Because lady is not a term we often use for family. So woman is the very same way. Um, you, you would expect somebody to call their mother something different than woman. And it seems unusual, like he's trying to distance himself a little bit from her. And then he says, what concern is that to you and me? This is a Jewish idiom. I have several phrases. If you want to write them down, you can check in other scriptures. That essentially means, what makes you think we're on the same team? What gives you the idea or the impression that we're on the same page? Because I really don't think we're on the same page here. Jesus desires to distance himself from his mother. The question is why? Well, why does Jesus provide this distance? In order to answer that, we need to kind of back up a little bit and look at some of the larger context of John. One of the ways that John is very different than the other gospel writers is that the predominant way Jesus gets engaged in healing stories in the other gospel writers is people come up to Jesus. They approach him and they ask something of him. John does have situations and circumstances where people approach him. But in John, Jesus will also go up to and he will approach people and begin conversations. You have that in the Samaritan woman. You have that in the man who for 38 years, he was uh, laying there as a lame man. You have that as the blind man in John 9. So you have these situations where Jesus approaches people. But there's four contexts in John where people will come to Jesus in order to make a request or a suggestion of him. So we exclude Nicodemus because Nicodemus didn't come to ask or suggest anything. He came to ask questions. And here's the four places. You have it here, Jesus' mother who makes this request. You have a royal official who says that um, his son is ill and he asks Jesus to come and to bring healing to his son. 
You have Jesus' brothers when Jesus is, uh, is not going to go to Jerusalem. They say, go to Jerusalem and perform your works there. And then you have Mary and Martha when they send the message to let Jesus know that their brother Lazarus is ill. And all four of these share, share a very similar pattern and stage in each development. It begins with a request, and then Jesus automatically has some sort of stalling or reluctance. There's no A and then B. There's a little bit of distance there. Then there is compliance. Jesus then ends up doing what is requested, and that's going to lead into a conflict with Jewish leaders. In all four instances, Jesus gives the impression that he's not going to honor the request, but then eventually he does. And so the question, why is there this gap between request and fulfillment? And I think all of these are examples of what we might call insider advantage. Notice the four people who are making requests of Jesus. It's his mother, it's a royal official, it's Jesus' brothers, and it's Mary and Martha. People who are close to Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation where, you know, the way to get out of the situation is you've got to know someone. I mean, if, if you just go into that office and you just ask them to help you, you're not going to get help. But if you know someone who has influence and power, you're going to get it done. I heard a story a couple of summers ago about a college student who was off doing some education abroad and he lost his passport. He goes in the office and they essentially say, nothing we can do, your flight's in a week, uh, there's nothing we can do. So he calls his dad. And dad is a part of a church where there's a well-connected lawyer. So dad calls the lawyer and says, anything you can do. That lawyer knows the governor. Lawyer calls the governor. Three days later, son's got a brand new passport. You've got to know someone to get things done. And so the question we have to be asking in the ministry of Jesus, is that how things work with Jesus too? You've got to know someone. Does the advantage come and saying, hey, uh, Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm a third generation Christian here. My parents are Christians. My grandparents are Christians. So I'm going to ask you on the basis of that heritage. Or can a person say, hey, I don't know if you've looked at my, uh, my, my job title yet, but I, I'm a minister of the gospel. And so on the basis of that, I'm going to come to you. Well, we're going to recognize that Jesus does not honor requests on the basis of the fact that a person has some sort of inside advantage, either in the religious community or even within his family. We cannot approach Jesus on the basis of our worldly credentials or our status or even the relationships that we have. In fact, what we will find more often, the, 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 the works that Jesus does more quickly and more immediately are with people on the fringes. The Samaritan woman, the blind, the sick. The Jesus will seek out those people because he is wanting to establish a relationship with Jesus is not based on anything other than one thing alone, which is faith and trust in Jesus. And so Jesus then will distance himself from his mother in an effort to let her know that Jesus is not going to act on the basis of her request as, his, as her son. I mean, what would it be like for Jesus if he had a mother who knew he had Jesus in his back pocket? Well, son, don't you remember all those times I got up in the middle of the night to feed you? Don't you remember all those occasions that I did this for you and that for you? And essentially, Jesus is saying, I will not be manipulated by my mother because there is a relationship and a connection that is stronger for me than even the maternal one I have with my own mother. And that is the relationship that Jesus has with his heavenly father. Mary must learn that if she is going to approach Jesus, she must do so as a believing disciple and not as a mother. As Augustine said, she must learn 
that her relationship to Jesus as a disciple is more important than her relationship to Jesus as his mother. And I think there's some importance in that for us today. In how we understand the significance of biological relationships and how we understand the significance of relationships on the basis of faith. There's an author and kind of cultural commentator in terms of things that are happening in, uh, in Christian circles, uh, Russell Moore, who says that he's knowing a growing trend among young evangelical families, what he calls the family first movement. And the family first movement is essentially saying, we're going to pit family and faith as two competing forces... And you're going to have to choose whether you're going to love your family or you're going to love your God. And so if somebody doesn't show up for different uh, things that are going on in the church, they'll say, we're, we're sorry, we need to put family first. We need to have some family time. Family is more important. And, and what Moore says, and I think what Jesus would affirm is, if you're going to put family first and you are a Christian, that means you need to put God first. The, the, the greater responsibility you have is not simply to raise kids who will come to honor and respect you as a mom or as a dad, but that you want to raise kids that will honor and respect God as their father in heaven. And if you develop that faith in them, then you'll recognize that you're doing your responsibility as a person who follows God. Now, that's not to say you say, oh, look, sorry, kids, I can't be around Monday night because I got this thing going on. I can't be around Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night. When you enhance faith, it also simultaneously enhances family. These are not two competitive forces. They work together. But when we put God first, God will help us to put family in its appropriate place. And Jesus, in his own relationship with mother, his mother, puts distance there to say there's something more important than biological relationship. And for Jesus, it is a relationship with his father. Jesus also puts space between himself and his mother recognizing that his hour has not yet fully come. In John's gospel, the hour is the hour of the crucifixion. There are two occasions listed there where we're told um, there's opposition. It looks like Jesus is at risk of, of getting out of this, and yet he gets out of it. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But by the time we get to John chapter 12, Jesus answers, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Or 13.1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. See, for Jesus, he knows there is a direct relationship between signs and the outcome. That is his crucifixion. Jesus knows that if he were to not perform any signs, that would not upset the religious leaders. Thereby, he would be able to get out of this whole destination of going to the cross. Jesus knows that if he pushes down that first domino, he knows where it's going to end up. And Jesus is wanting his mother to recognize that that hour has not yet come. But the time to begin has. Mary will say, um, do whatever he tells you. Can you see the transition she's made in the delay? Ball is in his court. Whatever he chooses to do, however he chooses to move forward with this, it will be his choice. Which means if he does a sign, and that sign will inevitably lead to the crucifixion, who ultimately is responsible for the crucifixion of Christ? Is he some passive victim? Or is he an active participating participant in the outcome? And we will find that when he does this work, he begins to show himself as his true identity as the Son of God. And so here's how John continues this narrative. Now, standing there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification. 
each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out, draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn water knew, the steward called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after, after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What does Jesus want to reveal in these signs? John prefers the language of either signs or works. He doesn't talk about miracles as much. And we think of the signs as, a, as, a, as essentially kind of drawing back the curtain, letting the light shine in, show something that's already been there, but it's a way to reveal the glory that Jesus has. We have been told and we recognize that John says that we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. So these signs show the glory of God, but the signs also point to something. In other words, the signs say, I will show you this in order that you can know that. So what does Jesus want to reveal in this sign? What Jesus shows us is that he will bring something fuller, richer, and better into the world than what existed before. Jesus is in essence, he is himself the good wine that has been kept until now. Jesus is the wine that flows in abundance. John has already told us in 1.16 that from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And so this fullness is now represented in these jars. These jars that carry between 20 and 30 gallons, making, say, at least 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Maybe we could even say, that's too much wine. And yet, that is a way to show that Jesus will give not just what is necessary. He won't just say, here, this ought to get you through the next 20 minutes. Jesus provides for his people grace upon grace, that which is in abundance, so much so that we can be overwhelmed by what he has done. And what Jesus did in this wedding, he is offering to do for all people who follow him, which is to show his grace upon grace here and now. Sometimes when we think about the work of Jesus, we think Jesus is building a time capsule that he's putting out in the future. One day, oh, one day things are going to be better. One day there's going to be a reason for joy. One day there's going to be a reason for abundant living. That's not what John is telling us. John is telling us into the here and now. Christ has interrupted with his full provision. Yes, there is something significant saved for us in the future. But the gift of joy is the gift for today. This first sign will also help to guide us through the next several chapters of John with this notion that the old will now be either replaced or improved by that which comes which is new. There's a hint John gives us in his specific language in verse chapter 2, verse 6, where he talks about six stone waters, jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus takes something that was set aside and used for purification, and he makes it better. Now, at this point in John, now we know the end of the story. But at this point in John, we're wondering, what is Jesus going to do? Something with purification, something that gets better. And we wonder, what exactly is he going to do to improve something to do 
with purification. And it's the very next story that John helps illuminate this. For those of you who are time watchers, just be aware, we're going to do this much faster than we did the first section. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip out of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. And he also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. There's a lot of different ideas about exactly what Jesus is doing here. Here's kind of four of the most common answers you've probably heard is, one, Jesus is confronting dishonest practices, people taking advantage of others by the buying and selling of these things. The other possibility is Jesus is confronting their very presence in the table that you shouldn't even be doing business, whether it's honest business or dishonest business, it shouldn't even be happening in the temple. Others say it's his presence in this part of the temple. This is the court of the Gentiles saying, hey, we're, we're going to turn the Gentile section of worship into a section of business place. Or the other is that Jesus is confronting the entire temple system. And I think that we can find what John is up to as we recognize what he says next. The Jews said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. We'll start to notice some links here. Jesus' temple as his body. The temple is the focal point of God's relationship with man. The temple is the place where God dwells. The temple is the center of all worship. The temple is the place where the sacrifices happen that bring people into a right relationship with God. And so Jesus, who is the good wine, comes to bring something new. He brings first the new Passover lamb, who is the new offering, and he himself becomes the temple, the replacement of the inferior. Now what comes second is good or better. There's some verbal links that we can see. Remember John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus twice, he called him what? The Lamb of God. John reminds us at the very beginning of him telling us this in 2.13 that this is happening during the Passover. And then we have this theme of purification that carries over from the first story. And Jesus is saying, I am the new means of purification and I am the temple itself. Jesus halts the temple operation for a moment as a way to say that Jesus will soon stop the entire movement of the temple. The temple will no longer function, not just in a momentary way, but in a complete and internal way. Jesus wants, John wants us to recognize that Jesus is a disruptive witness, both in human history, in Jewish history, and in our lives. What is Jesus disrupting with his ministry? Well, he's disrupting our understanding of family relationships and of family priorities. Who is the family of Jesus? It is nothing by virtue of blood in terms of relationship, but it is by virtue of faith. And we need to take inventory of our lives and say, have I allowed Jesus to appropriately disrupt my family so that I can prioritize him? Jesus disrupts the entire system of relating to God. 
No longer are there need for these jars of purification. No longer is there need for an annual Passover sacrificial lamb. No longer is there need for the temple because Jesus has become all of those things for us. And so as John will do often in his gospel, he is wanting to force a decision. And John's already laid out the two options about what you can do with Jesus. You can, of course, first of all, you can refuse to accept him. This is an invitation. It's not a force myself in. If you open the door or not, I'm coming in. Jesus offers himself and he says, you can reject me if you wish or if you choose. There is a second option. That option is to receive him and to believe in his name. I mentioned earlier Western Union's decision not to buy the Bell Company. Uh, Most people list that as one of the most catastrophic business decisions ever made. And guess what? We could make a more catastrophic decision today. A more eternal, lasting, significant decision if we make the choice to receive him and to believe in his name. John tells us that in Jesus he will replace all that is old and bring about something new. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we leave from here, we leave remembering that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way, we're going to stand and sing a song. Uh, I'll be in the back. Some of our shepherds will be in the back. But just invite you to come to the back if you need anything at all this morning. Let's stand and sing together.